chapter 17, beginning at verse 16 through to 34, which you can find in uh, printed insert in your leaflet, or will be on the screen behind me. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, gives, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away, sorry, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Well, thank you, Meredith, and good morning once again. It's really great to be with you for the second week in a row. I don't know that many of us thought that we'd get there to two weeks in a row with the rest of Australia kind of on tenterhooks at the moment. Uh, isn't it great to be able to, to be mask to mask though, to be able to see each other and be able to uh, have coffee together and sing together? How good is that? I reckon we should take the opportunity while we can, because it might not be around uh, forever over the next few months, uh, but while we can, it is great to be together. Um, in one sense, we've kind of got a really good at Adelaide, haven't we? Um, this week, I've been reminded uh, personally that um, the rest of the world isn't in such a great position. We've had some news back from Mike and Karen Roy in South Africa. If you don't know them, they're uh, one of the families that we support on the mission field, uh, uh, working in a college in South Africa. 
Um, Mike has been unwell with COVID this past week. He is on the improve um, today, this morning, but has been reasonably unwell this week. And Mitchell, their boy, has also been unwell. It sounds like both Amelia and Karen have already had COVID, but have come out the other side without um, having any symptoms. Um, I think it would be good for us to pray for the Rose, that they would um, be able to continue to improve in health and that they've... um, Know God's peace this morning. So I'm going to pray for them now. There's a photo of Michael on the screen. You can't see that there. Um, in isolation in his own home um, so that he doesn't pass on the strain that he has for the rest of his family. Will you join with me as we pray for the rose? God of grace and comfort, we ask that you would enfold Mike and Mitchell today with your mercy. Please strengthen them with the shield of faith and enable them to accept what is to come. We ask that you would heal them and bear their pain. Keep them in peace and help them to fix their hearts on you. We give you thanks for the the practical support that locals have been able to express towards the Roe family over the past couple of weeks. We ask that you would strengthen Karen as she worries about her family while also grieving the recent death of her grandmother. Father, we commend this family to you. They have, have given up lots to witness to Jesus in South Africa. We ask that you would enfold them and restore them. Amen. Thank you for joining me. You're joining with me as we pray for them. Uh, well, this morning we've already heard a bit about our Spring Connections project. We started talking about that last week. It goes hand in glove with this series that we're working through, looking at the book of Acts. In Acts, we see the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem, firstly to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And today, we've fast-forwarded again in the book of Acts. We've Jump from chapter 14 now through to chapter 17. And today we're in Athens with Paul. I reckon Paul probably felt like he almost got to the ends of the earth when he arrived in Athens. It's quite a different place to what he knows. He's a long way from home. He's still actually got further to go in his missionary journeys, but today I reckon he feels a fairly long way from home. This morning as we work our way through the second part of Acts chapter 17, I want you to see uh, two things really. I want you to see a bit about how, how Paul speaks, what he says, uh, how he speaks, sorry, but also a little bit about what he says. What he says and how he says it. I borrowed some headings this morning from William Taylor, who's a pastor in the UK. Uh, You'll see those headings in our outline if you uh, manage to grab a leaflet today. There are really three things that I want us to look at this morning. The setting, the setting, the substance, and the summons. You'll see those three points in your outline. The setting, the substance, and the summons. Now I want you to see Paul's in a different culture, a different place. And he knows that this morning. He understands what's going on. And so the setting shapes the way he speaks about Jesus. But at the same time, I want you to see that he still preaches the same gospel. It's the same gospel that has a summons, which is a call to repent. Paul doesn't change his message. He just changes the way he goes about telling that message. And I think it's a setting, this this new place, that makes this passage so interesting for us to read this morning. But I don't want us to miss, I don't want us to miss the substance of what Paul says either. Because the substance is critical. It's really important. The substance really is what matters. And that substance is summarised by verse 30. So you've got a, a printout in your leaflet today that, that gives us these, these pass, this passage. 
You might like to just turn to verse 30 and maybe underline it or circle it, because it really is, in a sense, the big idea of this passage. Verse 30 says this, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is the call to action that Paul wants the Athenians to hear. That's a message that's so important to hear because God has set a time when he will judge with justice by Jesus. If you want proof of that, the proof is in the resurrection of Jesus, says Paul. And we're going to come back to this over the next 20 minutes or so, but I don't want you to miss the wood for the trees today. Paul says all of us, doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or an Athenian, a Greek or Australian, we must repent. Why? Because God has set a time when he will judge with justice by Jesus. Now that's the big reason why we're running a program called Spring Connections. It's the big reason why Mike and Karen Rowe would would go to South Africa. Because of the substance. God will judge with justice. That is true and real. That's the big idea in our passage this morning. But I want to start by taking a look at the setting to see kind of what's going on. We pick up the story today in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. As I said, we've jumped forward from last week. Paul's now on his second of his missionary journeys. He's no longer travelling with Barnabas. He's now with Silas and Timothy. Now, you remember last week that Paul had been facing all sorts of challenges. He'd had rocks thrown at him. He'd been stoned. But life's not so easy either now. He's just been chased out of Berea and he's been escorted to Athens. That's the immediate context of this passage. And in Athens, it sounds like to me that Paul gets a bit of culture shock. I wonder if you've ever experienced culture shock. A few of you might remember back to the days where you were allowed to travel to different countries, different places, and when you were there, you might have been overwhelmed with what you found. I can remember when Meredith and I were first married, we went on a, a trip to Tanzania in Africa. We had instructions on how to get to the hospital that Meredith was going to work in. Quite detailed instructions on what to do. We felt prepared, but we were not prepared for the bus ride at 150 kilometres an hour around blind corners. We were not prepared and we didn't have instructions on what to do when the bus broke down in the middle of nowhere and we spoke not a word of the language. We did not have instructions on how to deal with the noise and the bustle of Africa. It was upsetting and confusing for us. We felt the culture shock. Here in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, Paul is distressed. Luke, the author, tells us that he's greatly distressed. Have a look at this verse with me. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. As a city full of idols. That word uh, full of idols could also be sort of translated in a way that the city was smothered with idols or it was a swamp of idols. Apparently there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country combined. In the Parthenon, which you might have seen before or seen photos of, I've got a photo of on the screen behind me, this big old building. There was a, a huge golden ivory statue, which I've also got a photo of, of the the god Athena was said to have a gleaming spear point that could be seen 40 miles away. This was the nature of the city. It was full of idols. And it's that that provokes Paul. He's distressed by this. 
Another way that we could read these words, being distressed, is to think of Paul as being jealous for God. And I think it's a really helpful way of understanding his emotion. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, tells us that, uh, that Paul, Paul's emotion could be regarded as jealousy. Not the sort of jealousy that you might get when you see someone who can play the guitar much better than you can and you kind of wish that you could do that. Or, or not the sort of jealousy you feel when you see someone drive past in your, your dream car. Not that sort of jealousy. But the, the sort of jealousy you might feel if a third party were to enter into your marriage. That sort of jealousy. It's the jealousy that's on view here. The sort of jealousy that's not sinful but righteous. And I think God feels that sometimes. No other thing has the right to usurp God's position in our lives. He alone deserves the allegiance of all people. That's right that God will be jealous if we, we gave our allegiance to someone or something else. Now the city of Adelaide, it doesn't have many statues made of stone or metal that people bow down and worship. But we still have plenty of idols in our culture in our city today, don't we? Someone once said to me that the best example for the modern man of what an idol is, is to think about that boat that you have in your garage. And you bring it out on the weekend just to wash it, polish it. Maybe you invest some money into it. You buy new bits of equipment for your boat. You don't even use it. You haven't got time for that. But you wash it, you polish it, you bow down to it, and you put it back into the garage, and you look forward to doing the same the following weekend. But of course, it's not just boats, is it? We idolize all sorts of things and all sorts of people today. Why should we be a church on mission? That's what we're talking about at the moment. A church on mission. Why should we be a church on mission? Well, you might turn to the the Great Commission to answer that. Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. Yes, that's true. That's a good way to see that. You might look at the book of Acts and say, we want to be on mission just like the early church. Yes, that's a good thing. But this passage also shows us why we might be on mission as a church. I'm quoting from John Stott here, and I've got the quote on the screen behind me. Let me read it to you. John Stott says, The highest incentive of all for a church to be on mission, or for us to be on mission, is zeal or jealousy for the glory of Jesus Christ. God has promoted him to the supreme place of honour in order that every knee and tongue should acknowledge his lordship. Wherever he has denied his rightful place in people's lives, therefore, we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for his name. That's what Paul's going through, I think. He's distressed. He's jealous for the glory of Jesus Christ. I wonder if we feel that way this morning. So what does Paul do? Well, firstly he goes to the synagogue and then he goes to the marketplace, reasoning and preaching and teaching about the good news of Jesus. Now, I think this is really helpful for us today. Because it shows us that Paul is out and about making connections. He firstly goes to the synagogue. That's that's Paul's usual practice when he gets to a, a new town, a new city, a new place. He goes to the synagogue, reasons and teaches there. But here in Athens he doesn't stop at the synagogue. He goes to the marketplace day by day, preaching, reasoning and persuading. If we're concerned with the name of Jesus in a similar sort of way, I wonder where you'd go to make connections. 
Do you have opportunities to make connections at work or at the school gate or at the marketplace that we have today? Do you have opportunities to connect over a run or a trip to the footy or to the movies? We've been talking a bit today already about our Spring Connections project. I don't think any of us are going to do it exactly the same way that the Apostle Paul does it. But can you see here that his time in the marketplace is a way in which he makes connections with others? And Athens seems to be the sort of place where this doesn't go unnoticed. We read in the passage that Paul captures the attentions of some Epicureans and some Stoic philosophers. Now, if you're wondering what an Epicurean is, they are those people who seek pleasure above all else. And Stoics, they, they sought to live in harmony with the natural order. Why does our author tell us that Paul's talking to Epicureans and to Stoic philosophers? I reckon it's primarily because he wants us to see that, that Paul is connecting with non-believers. Look with me the way in which Paul is connecting. I don't think he becomes the people's best friends, does he? So it doesn't sound like he's wowed them with the message that he says. They call him a babbler. It's not a particularly flattering phrase, is it? A babbler. But he's managed to connect with them in a way that gets him an invitation to the Areopagus. His connection has earned him a spot at the table. Now the Areopagus, it's both a a place and a group of people. It's a place called the Hill of Ares. I've got a photo of this hill. It's still there on the screen behind me. Um, Ares being the Greek god of war, or the Roman equivalent is the the god Mars. You, You might have heard of Mars Hill before. Well, here's the original Mars Hill. It's a place. That's also got takes the name of the group of people who met there. It seems like the Areopagus were a group of people who functioned a little bit like the government of the day. And as you read this passage, it certainly sounds like a, a government. In fact, Athens as a whole sounds a little bit like a government. Not to get too political really, but look what it says there at verse 21 in your printout. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds a bit like a government, doesn't it? (laughs) And if we're a bit more generous about the Areopagus, then it seems like what they're about is gain knowledge and enlightenment. Now certainly the word know or known, it comes up a lot in this passage. If it's helpful for you, you might like to underline those times that the word know or known comes up. I get the feeling as I read through this passage that Athens is a bit like a a modern university town. The pursuit of knowledge is what they're interested in. Now they're not flat out opposed to the message that Paul's bringing. They're they're certainly not throwing rocks at him like has happened in the past. And so they bring him to the place of debate to hear what he has to say. Remember he got there, got to the Areopagus because of the connections he made in the marketplace. And those connections arose out of his jealousy for the name of Jesus. So that's a setting that we find ourselves in today. A city awash with idols, yet a city that's curious. And Paul's made his connections. In verses 22 to 29, Paul Paul leverages those connections to to speak at the Areopagus about Jesus. Let me read to you from verse 22. It says this, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, 
to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now I think what follows next is is an outline or a summary of the sermon that Paul preached. I think Luke's condensed it for us. Because what I want you to see though is that his approach is different here to the approach that he would normally take in the synagogue. In the synagogue, Paul, Paul recounts the story of Israel. He talks about what Israel, what happened in Egypt and the Exodus and so on. Paul uses Jewish scriptures. He quotes from the Psalms. Here we see none of that. Can you see the setting where he is shapes how Paul speaks? Indeed, Paul links the things he's noticed about Athens to what he says in the area of this. This is really helpful for us today. Because Paul's giving us a message, giving us a model, a model to show us that contextualization is okay. But I want you to see also that although he, he makes the gospel appropriate in the setting that he's speaking, he doesn't change the substance of the gospel. There's no reference in Paul's speech to King David. He's adapting to the world around him. The gospel's still very much good news, though. Paul preaches the same gospel, he just uses a different method. So let's have a look at the method, the, uh, the substance of what he, what he talks about here. I want you to see there's really three steps in the substance to what Paul says. Step one, he tells the Athenians that God is the creator God. Step two, he says that God is the one who sustains. And step three, he says God is our father, or at least we are his offspring. Well, in verse 24, if you look down at your page, verse 24, Paul argues that God is the God who made everything. In other words, he's a big God. He created the world and the heavens and everything in them. And I think we're supposed to contrast that to the gods of Athens. Those gods were made by human hands. They were chiseled from rock or warped from metal. They were placed inside temples, perhaps. They were constrained and they were limited. Now, of course, they're just rock or metal. We need to remember that. The God of the Bible is not like that, though. He can't be constrained to a temple. The God that Paul's speaking about is sovereign over all things. Whereas the Athenian gods were broken into different areas of concern, a God of the weather, a God of love, a God of agriculture, the God of the Bible is God of all. And he made it. Foolish then to think that he could be contained or boxed in or tamed. If today you want to see a picture of the size of God, you could go home and read Isaiah chapter 6. It paints an almost terrifying picture of the, the size and the power and the might of our God. We read there that just his, the hem of his robe fills the temple. That's how big he is. Or you could do something like drive up to Uluru. I think you can still go there. It's one of the few places you probably can go. And you can see how big that rock is. Or you could look up into the night sky and see the stars in the distance and realise the size of our galaxy. Paul's God, our God, is too big and too grand and too powerful and too majestic to be constrained. Paul's saying he created the heavens and the earth. Saying to the Athenians, your, your view of God is too small. 
He's not a statue God. He's the creator. That's step one. Step two, he tells us that he's not just the creator, he's also the one who sustains, the one who gives life and breath. Paul says God sustains this world, and he contrasts that. God does not need us to sustain him. Now this might seem ridiculously obvious to us sitting here today. Remember, Paul is in Athens, and there are idols all over the place. And idols are needy things. It's kind of like a you-scratch-my-back, I'll-scratch-your-back kind of scenario with idols. The people left food at the idols, and in return, then the idols are obligated to send rain or protect you from war or to give you children or whatever it is you're asking from. We, in that situation, people serve the idols. Now, we see a similar sort of thing in some shops or restaurants. I went to pick up some dinner last night from a local restaurant, and they had a small shrine set up in the corner of the restaurant, and there was a very little glass of wine given to the shrine, given to the idol of the shrine. You might often see that when you go to a restaurant, maybe a can of beer or some fruit or a bowl of nibbles put on the shrine to the idol. And can you see that there's a bit of manipulation going on here? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Not so the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible sustains people. The God of the Bible does not need us to feed him. Now I'm going to pause here for a moment and just take you to another passage in the Bible just so we can see this really clearly. You want us to go to Mark chapter 10. If you've got a Bible there, you might like to flick there. Otherwise, just listen to me as I read. Mark chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. That asked him about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. In verse 43, this is Jesus speaking, he says this, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Here's verse 45, listen to this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These are Jesus' words. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. How does he do that? He gives his life as a ransom for many. I want us to be steeped in this truth today that God is the one who serves us. I don't think many of us are out there trying to give bits of fruit or so on to idols. Few of us probably doing that here. But I wonder if we are, in one sense, still trying to obligate God in one way or another. Who among us have prayed a prayer that says something like this. God, I need help with this medical test that's coming up, or this exam that I'm about to do, or this work deadline that's looming. Help me now, please, God. And next week I'll go to church. I might even go two weeks in a row. Or I'll, I'll give a little bit more to that charity. Or I'll, I'll ring my mum or I'll cook a meal for that friend. Or... I reckon many of us have prayed a prayer like that. And Paul tells us this is not how the real God works. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to go to church. He doesn't need us to feed him. He doesn't need us to be his hands and feet or his telephone operator or his meal maker. He sustains us. He doesn't need us to do that. Isn't that amazing? Even to the point of death, God serves us. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. That's what our God is like. 
I hope this is helpful for us today. This sets the scene of what our God is like as we go about making connections with others. Our God serves us. He serves us by laying his life down as a ransom for many. He's not sitting up in the sky watching to see if you've done enough good things before sending that work promotion your way. Or he's not looking on the small things in life, like whether you put the litter in the correct bin before the insurance windfall comes your way. That's not how our God works. He's not manipulated. Well, next week, Paul goes on in verses 27 to 28 to, to, to contextualise the gospel even further for the people of Athens. So rather than quoting from the Jewish scriptures, he, he quotes some of their contemporary thinkers of the day. Let me read to you from verse 28. It says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul's point here is that if humans are the offspring of God, then we shouldn't think of God as being something that we can make an idol out of in terms of gold or stone. No, we're made in God's image, not idols. And you see, he's using the thinkers of his day. He's contextualising his message. So these are the the three points that Paul makes in his substance section of this sermon. God is a big God. God is the God who sustains the world. He serves us and God is not like an idol, so stop making images of him. And then in verses 30 to 31, Paul drives this all home with his summons, his call, his instruction. That's point three on our outline. He's gone and made the connections. He's had the chance to persuade and to educate. And now in verse 30, he brings all of his work to a head. This is what he says. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has said a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Remember, Paul's jealous for the name of Jesus. He wants Jesus to be praised and to be honoured by the Athenians. That's what's driving him. That's what's motivating him. But can you also see here there's a sense of warning the Athenians. God will judge. He's already set a day when he's going to do this. He's already appointed Jesus as that just judge. It's coming. And if you doubt this, look what's already happened. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now if you're here today because you came along just to hear a little bit more about this person, Jesus, thank you for being with us. It's terrific to be here. Here's the big thing I think Paul or Luke would like you to know from this passage. God will judge. And if you doubt that, consider what he's already done. He's raised Jesus from the dead, raised him to his right hand, given him all power and authority. Why? Well, at least in part, so that he can be the just judge. This is one of the things about having a real God, a God who's not made of stone or gold. Allegiance to him, faith in him, really matters. It makes a difference. And yet at the same time I want you to see that this Jesus, this just judge, is also the one who came to serve us, to offer his life as a ransom for many. See, the God of the Bible is not a needy idol, but he is big and he is powerful and he is in control. 
I wonder this morning how you've responded to a God like that. God who Paul's has described. Have you repented? Have you turned back to God? That's what Paul's asking them to do here. They're just here today, just checking out who Jesus is. Don't shrug this all off. I'd love you to keep reading Acts and keep looking at the story of who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, if you already know these things about Jesus, I hope you're encouraged by seeing Paul's jealousy and, and what he does with that, the message that he brings to the city of Athens. Because we too have a city that needs to know Jesus. The question for us today is, how will we connect? That's what we're asking you to think through with our Spring Connections project. My guess is you're going to do it in a different way to Paul. Few of us are going to be preaching in the marketplace like he does. And it probably won't be through finding a, a rocky hill to go and debate with philosophers on. But there will be lots of opportunities, I hope, in the coming weeks to deliberately connect with your neighbours by going for a walk together, having them around for a meal, going to the footy. It's appropriate as we do that, that we will contextualise the gospel to the situations that we're in. But I want you to remember as well that we too need to keep the substance of the gospel the same, just as Paul does. Because God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. I'm going to pray for us that we'd be a church that's on mission and that we'd have lots of opportunities in God's kindness to connect with others. Father God, we thank you for this little section of Paul's life that Luke records for us that shows us a model for how we might contextualise the message of what Jesus has done for the world around us. We pray that you would give us wisdom to do that well. Pray for opportunities to connect with others. May pray that through your spirit you would help us not to change the message of the gospel, not to make it more palatable, but simply to contextualise it for ears that need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.